Welcome to another episode of Love Not Fear podcast. This time a guest edition, and I'm honored to have Troy Armour with us. Welcome, Troy. Thanks, Edward. Great to be here. I believe you're in Monaco right now. Correct. You wouldn't believe it, but it's snowing here. But never mind the, the small talk. <laughs> Troy, we've uh, met a couple of times, and your accent gives it away. You are an Irishman. Yes, I grew up in the northwest of Ireland, in the most extreme part of of Europe. You you can't go much further up. We we used to joke if you if, to the, the kids. We still do. If you go swimming off there, the next thing you'll meet is the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> okay, nice. But besides being Irish, there's there's this one thing that really is remarkable. And everybody who has met you in person will have noticed that that there's one topic in your life that when you start talk about that your whole physique changes something happens within you and that's why i asked you to be my first guest in the love not fear podcast so let's let's touch up on that topic i can kick it off or would you like to kick it off you, you, you kick it off because you've seen something that maybe that'll be an eye-opener for me too i obviously know the success but i'd love to hear what it was that prompted you to reach out to me because of what you saw. Yeah, yeah. We've spoken about a lot of things, and you're the CEO of a Patrol Group. Yeah. Uh, we will speak about it a little bit a uh, bit later. But you have a large ambition, and in order to paint a picture, you said, I have this ambition for a, a movement, and I want it to be as big as the Formula One. That immediately painted a picture in, in my head. And this is giving a podium to to kids to be, yeah, it, your initiative called Junk Couture, it solves multiple purposes. And I think you're the expert on telling us what Junk Couture is. Okay, so just before we get into that, so just a little bit of background. I, at school, I was determined. I was very much interested in school. I was very much the person who did what they were told. I was very much that kid with my parents said, don't do this, don't do that. I, I didn't use bad language because my parents didn't allow us to that, or my brothers and sisters didn't matter. I, I, that was the kid I was at school. I was very much a goody goody. I was very interested in art, but also good at numbers. But the thing that I remember most that I've carried with me is I was terrible at sport. And I could never understand at that time how much social capital sport brought. And as a kid, even though I was good at so many things, my skills to me were never valued because it was the, the kids who were that, that excelled at sport, got all that social capital and were the cool kids. And and I just seemed to be so easy. Now, I know it was an, an adult. It, it, it wasn't for them. But at the same time, as a kid, that's what stood out to me. And And as I grew up out of school, I ended up not going to college because of my experience at secondary school. I just said, I don't want to go to school anymore. And I did an accountancy apprenticeship for a few years before starting my first business when I was 21. But this movement that you alluded to is the thing that now consumes me most days. And how that kicked off was in 2010, I came across this dress that was being made out of junk. And it prompted in me kind of some memories of a child where in our homes we were naturally sustainable, call it, right? Because everything that came into our homes got reused and we did make clothes out of old dusters and we mended clothes and we used the cornflake box for making masks at halloween we've you know the irish is famous for this St. patrick's day celebration 
we'd wear badges and stuff. Again, all of them made out of old bits of rubbish that were lying around the house. So this brought me back to that childhood. And I was like, God, where did all that go? Because I had a daughter of my own and, and, and those things kind of got lost a little bit. So I was like, what would it be like to bring some of that back and make a sport out of it? So Junkature was born as a hobby for me in 2010. And it was a thing I did on Sundays because I worked every other day. So Sunday was my day off. And what I didn't realize was that there was a massive stickiness with it. So kids came to compete. It was very small ever. Now, this was in hotel rooms, right? So hotel rooms around Ireland. But there was a, a big stickiness with it. There was a big sense of community with it. And it took me a long time to figure out the why it was, you know, it meant so much to me and also why it meant so much to the kids who took part, their teachers, their parents. But some of that story kind of got explained. I remember I have other businesses and I remember my sister used to say to me, why are you persistent so much with this junkature business, this, this hobby? If you put the same effort into your businesses, you'd be extremely wealthy, you know, and I could never answer the question but I could never give it up either. And I remember, you know, joining EO in the middle of that journey. And that led me to EMP, the master's program that they do at MIT. I remember that first night, the guy bringing out a box of Kleenex, this guy, Brian Brold, and saying, you know, we're going to need this, you know, people are going to cry. And I was never in this kind of world before. And there was a lot of Americans. And of course, for, for an Irish person, I was very shy, right? I mean, that's the, we're, we're introverts in a way, and if you get us talking, we'll talk. But the Americans just seem to be so easy to say, oh, this happened to me, and that happened to me. And I remember sitting at the back of the room, and when it came to my turn, this guy pressing me, you know, why this junkature, why this junkature? And, you know, after eight or nine times of answering that question, I just started to cry. And the words that came out of my mouth were not what I expected, but it was, he pushed them there. They were always somewhere down inside me but the words came out of my mouth were because every one of those kids is me and that was the realization that moment that this had something bigger than money attached to it it was about giving kids who never before had their skills or talent valued so i used to say i used to say this a lot we don't value creativity enough you know and it's around us every day right and and, and examples i use and i you know is I remember that the Daily Mail is an English tabloid newspaper doing a story a number of years ago about the great iPhone ripoff, you know, and it, that they'd gone to China and they'd worked out to make an iPhone was 10 pounds. Why was Apple ripping people off by charging them six or 700 pounds for this thing that costs a tenner? And the thing that they missed in all that was that at the time when iPhone came out, Nokia and Motorola dominated the market and they had tried all kinds of ways to put bigger screens on phones and cameras on them. And they, stay, and they failed. And the big thing that Apple solved wasn't the technology part of it, was the idea that you could create a device that used your finger, that a two-year-old could use and a 70-year-old could use. And that was the creative piece in all that. And Johnny Ive was the head of that, uh, led that at Apple. And that was the value, the real value that was created. And, and, and you've seen it, kids can pick up an iPhone without an instruction manual and use it. And that was the value that the Daily Mail hadn't counted on. And that was the bit that most people turn around because the way most people see that creativity is after it's done. 
So you hear the song after it's created. You see the painting after it's done, after it's painted. You hear the story or read the book after it's created. And then it's easy to go, ah, somebody just put words on a page. But if you roll back to the turmoil, because that's what it is, it comes out of the turmoil of the person sitting there going, well, where does the story go? How am I going to get my emotions into the song? How, you know, what is this painting going to say about me or to other people? That's where the value was created. And for me, that piece was never valued at school. You know, I was a creative person and I was constantly told, you need to leave the art behind, there's no money in it. And I ended up doing accountancy out of that. Yeah. Sorry, that answer went on a little bit longer than I thought it would. It was a bit, a bit long, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to, the, what really happened when that trigger moment, what was the insight you got at MIT? Said, answering the same question a couple of times, you realized something. What was it? What, what did you start doing? Or what did you look into in a different perspective? There was a couple of things that came out of that week that I spent there. So that was one realization that I had a bigger connection to this than, than anything else that I was doing. The other thing that came out of it too was that I was capable. So before that, all my businesses were, they were national. They were national. So they were inside Ireland. They dealt inside Ireland. I never saw any potential in me to go beyond that. And one of the reasons I actually went to that EMP program was that I realized to grow Junkature beyond the borders of Ireland that I had to invest in me. That was the big reason why I went. I sat down and went, okay, there's a lot of things working here, but there's a lot of things that are not. The reason that they're not is they're all centered around one, one problem, and that problem is me. And, and unless I can change my mindset, and so what I come to learn from that is this too, is that, uh, you know, we've different words for it, limiting beliefs, one that you hear a lot, the love, not fear, that we're talking the fear, right, is, is another one. I mean, you're a product of your culture. And, you know, I never really understood culture when I was younger. I thought culture was the music and the dance and the food of some nation or whatever. But it's not. It's the little bits that shape you from when you're born. The little tiny things, the, the words that are said, the, the storytelling that you hear, the, the, the way that you see other people behave. You know, I, I, I used this as an example with my team to explain culture one day, right? I said, okay, how much? Should we charge for one of our team to work on something for one of our clients in a day? And the answers come back range from 200 to 500 euro. And I said, okay, now I didn't tell you that the client is based in the center of New York. And if you sent them a quote for 200 euros for the day's work, they would go, what, what do you mean? That, that's impossible because they're more used to $10,000, but we're a product of our culture, of the environment we're in. One of the things that EMP did was to see, was to help me see that I needed to lift myself out of that, to bring something to a global audience. I needed to become really focused on my mindset and that my mindset had to change. And I needed to surround myself with international operators. And you'll see, because this is how we met, I moved from Ireland's EO, and nothing wrong with Ireland's EO, but I moved to the European one just to surround myself with people who were working outside of borders, working on the idea of bigger all the time. And, and I think 
I think they were the two biggest lessons. One of the, the, the one of the when I come back from EMP, I remember in my mind saying, "This could reach every classroom in the world." Actually, this belongs in every classroom in the world. That wasn't an insight I had just two weeks before that. Okay, we're going to dive into what exactly it is and what, what the KPIs are uh, of this initiative. But at first, I'd like to uh, to learn a little bit more about how you balance your passion for junk couture. And your other roles, your other responsibilities. You're an entrepreneur. You have a media and technology uh, company. Your director is still the director of the patrol group. How do you balance those? So, look, they 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 move and flow. But uh, I have worked a lot now to put a you know to increase the power of the team. So to give some back, the patrol group is a holding company for it now is two companies. I had four when I went to MP and I. But I, what came out of that was I had to start removing myself from some of these. Like you couldn't, I couldn't afford. So two, one I sold, one I just, I, 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 I finished it up. It, it just wasn't making any money anyway. And the the two that I kept were Junkature and Trojan. And Trojan mainly because it was at the time, and it still provides my lifestyle. So it de-risked everything else. And what I did then is I've invested in the team in, in, in Trojan so that I can exit myself a lot from it. And I do not now in the day-to-day -day be involved so much. And then the focus then has been on how, you know, do we scale Junkature? And there's challenges in that mainly, because, you know, I mean, we all know about venture capital and just one of the things that you need if your business plan changes dramatically when you say, I want to bring this into every classroom in the world. You need capital. You need to find people who have that experience, who don't have the, the time scale to start developing people over five or 10 years. And, and when you're not a technology company, most people, you know, a lot of the VCs are in that space. It's difficult. It's difficult out there. But that, and then I think the thing that we haven't talked about in that in time is family, because I have my, my wife and, and daughter I have. I, I really enjoy the time with them. One of the things that I would say is, that the three of us together are extremely strong. And you, you'll know, because I, I, we talked about it, I'm living in Monaco. One of the things about living here that's changed in my life is that I went from 500 square meter, 500 square meter home to a 100 square meter home. I went from seven bedrooms that we didn't need right, to two and one living area. And, and what that has done is that has made that we now live more together all the time, which can be difficult. So in, in the previous home, my wife's from Spain, we would have had a Spanish sitting room, had Spanish TV. And so the two girls would have been there most of the time. And I would have been on my own. And we would have met for dinner times and bedtimes and so on. Now we have to commute around the one room all the time. And that has actually been a lot of fun and has given me a lot more involvement in my daughter's life. I know what's going on with their homework. You know, so the first time, and you're a big advocate with AI, but the first night she came out, Edward, to read this speech to me, right, that she'd written for, for history. I'm sitting there going, my God, we have a genius in the house, right? I couldn't write this as well. Like, she's 12 years old, right? And then, so eventually it goes on and on and on. And the question comes out, did you write that all yourself? And then you get the answer, well, no, you put it into a, a site and then the site does this. And then it was like, oh, right. Yeah. Well, that, that was at 10 o'clock at night. This was to be handed in the next morning. So me and her sat down and said, right, we're going to do it. We're going to do it yourself. I'm going to help. And we got up at 5 a.m. And, you know, 
a year ago, that wouldn't have happened. No. That wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have known anything about it. I would have just heard a grade at the end of it. And, and that, for me, has been a big thing. And I think another big thing of that, too, and this is the same about managing time, you know, we designed our life to be here. So we had a, we, we were somewhere else last year, we were in the UAE, and when that didn't work out, we sat down and we said, right, what are the things that are important to us? What, what, what are the things we want in life? And I remember saying to my wife, I want to be plus one or of the office. And the reason for that is, because I experienced that before for a short period of time, was that, you know, when we get up, up in the morning for school, that's roughly 7, 7.30 a.m., Ireland doesn't wake up until 10 o'clock our time. So me and my wife have those mornings where there is no phone calls. There is, there's nobody banging on the door. You know, we go for coffee, we have a chat and that's very important. And I think that was one of the things that we designed to allow to have that time. I'm incredibly grateful for that time in the morning. That extra hour is brilliant. Yeah, from personal, uh, I, I do the same thing. I'm an early riser and I love this, this mysterious two hours. You, you, it feels like you're stealing them from the world because the world isn't operating yet. So, yeah, I can really relate there. So besides uh, changing your physical environment with all the benefits you just mentioned, what else was set in motion by allowing yourself to really yeah, give this the attention you wanted to give? Do people see you in a different way right now? Yeah, and, and, but that's a challenge for myself personally, too, because... People have said this to me, don't let your identity become the CEO of, of Junkature. But I don't know how to unravel both of those things because, you know, I'm conscious now when I sit down and meet somebody at the start, I don't bring it up immediately because before I would have been straight into this is what I do. And I will sometimes just pass it away as, oh, I run an entertainment media business or whatever. Right? That's what I pass away. But I will say this. It has created, since I did the EMP program, it has created challenges that I believe the other businesses would not have created. And in those challenges have pushed me outside of my comfort zone, which, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself. You'll know that that's the place where you really grow, but it's the most difficult place sometimes to go. And so one of the examples of that is Junkature is 13 years old now. For the first 11 years of that, I did not do any interviews. I didn't speak in public. I didn't talk to a newspaper, radio, TV. I didn't do anything like this, right? And then, so I hired people to do that. And then I would sit and listen to some of the things they say, and I go, but that's not right. And I was like, the only way to solve that is if I do it. But I, I could never. I did classes on how to speak in public. Terrible, awful, couldn't. The minute I stood up to speak, I was like, cannot speak. And... EO did this exercise with me a number of years ago. This one I remember distinctly, and it was about what happens when you go to sleep at night. And so the exercise was, okay, picture yourself at midnight. You're at home. Everybody's asleep. The lights are out. You don't want to go to bed because you're not going to sleep. What are the four or five things keeping you awake tonight? And I did this with my EO forum. And it's funny. Everybody had five different things, right? The thing that bothers you doesn't bother me. The thing that bothers me doesn't bother you. But I wrote down my five and on a little card and I put it in my wallet and didn't think any more about it. And a couple of weeks later, I was cleaning up my wallet and I found this card and I remember honing in on number three, which was I had no self-worth. And I went, why is that? I need to do something about it was the thing I said to my mind, but I didn't know what. 
But that led me on a two-week journey to find someone to speak to about it. And that changed my life. Because in two hours, that person identified in me something that I was telling myself that wasn't true. And I was keeping that from when I was a teenager, those days of being rejected on the football team. It was in the back of my mind that I was not good enough to do those things. And I remember the next day waking up and ringing the PR company and saying, I want to do an interview. And that was the first time I ever spoke in public about that. And what I learned from that interview was my biggest weakness was my biggest strength. Yeah. That was it. And once I started to tell people about some of those things, I remember I did the third interview I did was on radio and I got 70 phone calls and messages from people I didn't even know, men mostly, saying, I was that kid too. I don't have the courage to tell anybody. You know, one guy was calling me and he was in tears. He said, God, the courage you have is unreal. And that's a thing, you know, especially with men, we struggle sometimes to say these things because if, you know, you, you hear the things as a kid, you're told, I ah, know, man up, yeah. you know, be a man about that. Now, come on, you know, no tears, right? Harden up a bit. You know, we'd be sitting at Narnia and say, harden up a bit. Or this is the hairs in your chest. You know, that's the way that it's, it's this whole thing about a manly thing. So we bury a lot of these things that we think that aren't that. And and it's what's our definition of a man, you know, as such. And I would have always said, and this is the thing I said on radio, I said, you know, I in some ways would be very feminine in different things. I, I very much like fashion. I said, you know, colors. And I said, I'm the one who buys handbags in our house. And that was the, the quote, the guy crying on the phone saying to me, God, I, 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 I love buying handbags too. You know, <laughs> I couldn't tell anybody that. And I said, they're not for me, you know, but, but, but I have an eye for it. And it doesn't mean I'm any less of a man because of that. And that was a thing, you know, that I believed that, okay, I border on this line. And growing up, I would have been often labeled the gay kid, you know, because people misunderstand those things. And the yeah. definition of what a man was, I didn't fit it exactly that alpha male role. But that's the thing that Junkature has brought to me personally, that if I didn't have it, I don't think in the other companies it would have existed, right? But I'll say this too. I think Junkature had to exist in some way because inside, it's it's like a tiger's caged, you know, and eventually will find its way out if you're going to be your true self. But it is this fear holds us back in so many ways, you know, fear of failure, fear of being seen for who you really are, fear of your dark side being revealed and then going, okay, people are going to see who I really am. I'm not the CEO. I'm not capable. I'm that weird kid that didn't fit when I was a teenager. Nobody wanted to hang out with him, so they're not going to want to hang out with me anymore once they find out that the trophies that I've put around me now from entrepreneurship or the stories that I now tell that they're not really that great when you peel them back. But actually, that's true about all of us. So let's talk a little bit about the process because Junk Couture challenges young people to create wearable designs from junk material. Correct. What are the, what are the benefits and the challenges of this process? So there's so many, right? So that, that's the, the baseline. The baseline is you have to create a wearable fashion item with high-end art, couture fashion from everyday trash. 
And so the best way to tell you about the challenge is to tell you some of the stories of the kids. So I remember, I like, can tell this one a lot, Katie, because Katie now works for me, but Katie was the girl who decided in 2012 to make a dress from orange peel, which of course continuously rotted. I think there was four versions of that dress made that rotted until Katie decided there had to be another way. And, you know, and the thing that's great about kids is an adult will say, you need to clap yourself on. That's not going to work. You know, go find something else. Instead, Katie got a real interest in the science of food, which she never had before. She started studying about foods, preservatives. She got very much into the, the, the way that, you know, we would have made leathers years ago, but figured out a, way, a methodology to make leather out of these oranges. And that's the resiliency, but it's also that mindset that young people have. And it's great to be around that of, you know, we don't have the same blinkers that adults have. And so out of that, Katie then got such an interest in food that she went on to become a doctor, a, diet, a dietetics doctor. And I met her at a dinner we were at where she was telling the story of how we'd met. And she told it so well, Edward, right, that I turned around and said, you're, you're, you're getting into the wrong job. The doctor, what are you talking about? And I had to run to get a flight. So when I got into the taxi, I sent her a message going, You're getting into the wrong job. I think that you should work for PR and comms, come work for us, tell that story around the world, you'll inspire people. And it's only before Christmas we were talking about that. And she said that she had to go Google what PR was because she didn't know what it was. Right. But eight hours later, she said, Right, you know what? I'm going to give this a go. And that too, I think, is testament to the stickiness of what junketure creates in people, because they they do get something out of it. And so she got she got a career out of it. She's now working in PR and comms and has talked at the United Nations and all kinds of places. Davos last year, incredible orator. But other kids, I remember Maxim. Maxim is a young guy from rural Ireland whose story would be very similar to mine. And I remember he entered the competition a couple of times. He didn't do very well, but he, he won it in 2019. And as part of that prize, he got to go to some events. There's a Royal Film premiere in London. He, he, he was on the red carpet with some movie stars and he was at the Cannes Film Festival and it was, it was flown by helicopter to get there and different things. But he was interviewed a year later and the interviewer was saying like, like, wow, these are huge things. You know, like most adults will never get to experience some of these things, never mind a 16 or 17 year old kid. But which one was the biggest? And this guy just paused for a little second and he said, actually, the biggest thing for me was I found my personality. Yeah. And when I heard that, it wasn't about that. But what hit me about that was his personality was always there. It was that other people saw his personality. It got valued. And then it was, for me, the power of being seen for who you are. Because that's the thing. And what happens in school is, and what happens to kids are, when you tell them that, no, you need to get better at your science, you need to get better at your maths, right? What you're actually, what they hear is, oh, so my skills are shit. You want me to get new skills? So they go, oh, but I actually want to paint. And like, I remember now schools have changed a lot, but there's still a way to go. And some of those things you carry with you the rest of your life. That's the thing that we have to start to realize. Yeah. While some of those throwaway comments mightn't seem so much to people. The one that stands out to me is I remember watching a video on YouTube by Robbie Williams. He wrote a poem and he wrote this poem. Now, this is a man who achieved 
unbelievable things, right? He's a globally renowned musician, dancer, performer. I don't know what kind of money he's, he lives in LA, whatever. But here he is in his 40s, writing a poem, an ode to a teacher that he had a way back when he was a teenager who told him he would never make anything performing. And then he was still carrying that 30 years later, even though he'd achieved all this stuff out here, he couldn't see that past this little this little guy saying to him, you'll never make anything of yourself performing. And the, the kind of goes, hi, sir, remember me? And the Bobby said, would never be. Like, you know, I've done all the things, but how to get back at this guy? How to close this off in some way? And that that's the thing to me now is I talk to our judges, for example, in the competition, and I'm very, very adamant about there'll be no negatives in here. Everybody's a winner. We need to keep that energy going. They need to be celebrated for what they've done. They've overcome some challenge in their life. One of the things that I like about Junkature is it is a massive platform for inclusivity. So it's not where you have girls football and boys and they never, ever meet. Junkature, because you use creativity and imagination, is open to everybody and they all compete together. So you have kids from all levels of you know, society. So like one of the things that I wanted was a kids in Mumbai could be part of this. I wanted kids in Africa. And it was, you know, the kids who won the first world final. They're two guys who came from Nigeria into Holland and into Ireland, right? And, you know, and if you went back through their journey of out of, out of Nigeria, and like so, so many young people have had, had to emigrate from Africa, but what an achievement, what, what a, and, and, a design aspect that they had it was it was fantastic to see those things but i wanted those everybody to have this kind of level playing field money couldn't buy it white privilege couldn't buy it that you know creativity was the thing that's being celebrated you didn't need anything to compete hmm. skills what men and women compete together i thought that was I thought that was a really powerful thing for me and that, that nobody was left behind that was a big deal too I didn't want that feeling of you, you, there's something wrong, you know, which was what I got as a kid. And that I see has massive benefits for those kids. And I remember this mother writing a letter, and it's a good number of years back, wrote this letter to the, to the company, not just me, but, and she wrote that you don't realize how you've changed my daughter's life. And the story went on, you know, that my daughter had been self-harming for two years that we brought her to psychologists and there just was no confidence and there was nothing changing and you know this wasn't happening but she entered junkature and through that process her dress made to the first semi-final and she didn't have the confidence to wear it so the night before I asked her sister look would you wear that for me because i can't and so her sister wore the dress on stage and they made it through to the final the final in, in dublin and the mother continues you know and the night before that show she came and said actually do you think my sister would mind if i now wore it myself on that stage hmm. and the mother written in you know this is now six months on from that event and there's no self-harm and she's going to college she's found a whole pathway hmm. and then when i remember telling the story to a new hire that we had right and that new hire said to me and have you ever tracked that girl down to see what happened where did she go what did she do and i said god i haven't actually I said, you know what, I'm going to find her on Facebook today. So that night, sat down, found her on Facebook, sent her a message and said, Doc, I'm just wondering how you're getting on, you know, remember you from back in the day and so on. 
And it took an hour or two, but that night she wrote me a lovely message to say, I can't believe you remembered. But she said, today's significant for me because I got a first class honours degree out of Cambridge. And wow. I owe that to what happened in 2016. And, and they're the things, like there's so many stories out there. There's 100,000 kids have gone through this. I don't have all of them, but right. I know in some way, because every one of them I meet, I get some of the background of what they were going through, how this helped channel energy a different way, how this got them to be seen in ways that they wanted to be and that they weren't before. So I do know the value that it creates. Yeah, and, and probably it's, it's paying forward through these people, right? Yes, very yeah. much so. Very much so. So then I'm hoping, well, I, I can see it, and I see it in Katie. They bring it forward into their lives and with other people that they meet. Yeah. So another thing we haven't spoken about, but junk couture uses waste material. There, there's a huge message in that as well, in our, our perspective and how we view our positioning regarding to waste. What is waste? I seen the, the video that you, that that's out there. We'll put the video in the in the show notes, and and it, it shows about what kind of SDGs uh, John Couture touches upon. But it's it's really remarkable. It's like ticking so many of, of these boxes. I was I was inspired by that, and it's not just a fake principle. In the video, there are some pretty bold statements being made about touching the lives of four hundred million people, yeah, one hundred thousand schools. We have a massive ambition, I have to say, and I'm lucky that I have found and, and helped you know, a team that have joined up to let's push this on and where it can go to. But yeah, at the heart of it, the SDGs didn't exist whenever this started out. But at the same time, what I learned as a kid growing up is that there was no waste in our home because money didn't allow that. And, you know, as the first world has become more affluent, it is easier to go and buy, you know, something made out of plastic to put your pens in than it is to get a jam jar, clean it out, find some seashells, put it to make it yourself. And I wanted to try and bring some of that back. But also it makes people conscious of what actually do we throw away all the, all the time. You know, I we started this thing in our house, plastic free Christmas, just just trying to because we know plastic is a thing that cannot be broken down, but also this phrase, what is, what's future trash? So sometimes we go to buy things because it's the latest gadget, it's the latest, it's this, we need it. And then, you know, I'd say, my wife had this discussion now because something bought last week and I said, I'm worried that's future trash. And she goes, trust me, it's not, right? And, you know, and it's just one of the things that we can do is, we chatted about it on people's culture, is that we can adapt the culture of all these kids. And they are the leaders in our homes, in our countries, in our companies of the future. And so if their culture comes forward, then that will help a mass change. Because ultimately, you need an army to make a mass change. They talk about the power of one, but and, and that's that's slow. So, you know, we have 100,000 now. Our ambition is, is to get to hundreds of millions and it is bringing forward these messages of, okay, how do I mend this shirt rather than put it in the bin and get a new one? How do I, you know, and see the impact that they have if they don't do these things and it's just a disposable lifestyle because eventually that will lead to other problems. So there, there's many SDGs that we touched, like that they, I talked earlier on about girls and boys being on the same stage, but equality of education. You know, among both sets, we take for so much for granted in the Western world. But when we went to Africa and Asia and these places where 
women still not, or young girls still are not seen as you know a school going you know it's I, I remember at climate week two years ago I listened to Matt Damon we were at the same event and he was talking about something that moved him because he's at an organization I call water.org but he spent some time in Africa and the thing that he noticed most was that these young girls were getting up in the morning and they had a two-hour hike with you know a bucket on their head to collect the water to bring back and so school was not on the agenda at all it was this was their thing this was their contribution to the village to the family to whatever and so while you know and this is the thing we talked about earlier on too about getting outside of the mindset of where you grew up because until you go to see those things you don't know they exist as a problem you really don't and, and you know our culture in europe you know my daughter it was never it was always a given she's going to go to school it's always a given that there's a place for her it's always a given that she'll get a career out of that you know there's there's pathways we've done so much but we're only a small part of the world and then the rest of the world has a lot of way to catch up so i think one of the things that john couture has managed to do in some of these places is give these young creative people this platform that will help with the, 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 the equality of education. That's another SDG that's out there. And then, I mean, the sustainability, the fast fashion, all those things tie into that as well. Getting people to see, it's, it's not so much about the fast fashion, it's about what am I wearing? What are the impacts it has on, on other people? What impact does it have on the planet? Do I need to buy something to wear once? Can I wear 30 times? That's something we, we say now, the forces of economics, and I've talked about this, to you. the forces of economics is one of the big issues involved there because capital rewards consumption. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big, big change. And I have sat down to draw or redefine the economics of the future. That would be the model as I see it, that would help us massively overcome some of the things we have, because until you solve that problem of capital rewards consumption, then mm-hmm. You will never solve the problem ultimately. But what do you need? You need an army of young people then who are armed with that, who go out into the world and go, no, I won't accept that. This is the way I want my company to operate. This is the way when they hire them into supply chains, they say, no, the supply chain has to be able to return its output to nature. You know, these kind of things. We have a bigger responsibility than just a fashion competition. So the world changes with the, with the, the new generation that's always been the same. With this podcast, we don't reach that many of them. So what kind of advice or what kind of help would you, would people be able to give the, the, your movement, your John Couture movement? Let's say I want to be a part of it or I want to become a silent ambassador. How, how does that work? Okay, so, I mean, we have many fans around the world. I think the thing is, is seeding it in school. So one of the biggest challenges we have, and I mean, you mentioned KPIs there, and we didn't get to it, but... One of the biggest challenges we have is is reaching more schools. Like it's anywhere in any country. Now I know, I know you're in the Netherlands, for example. So and we're not, but one of our partners has put together a program where, as a company, it's not financial, but in kind, they want to help the rollout of Junkature in the Netherlands. So they have set themselves a goal of, as a company to go. How could we bring this incredible thing? seeded into the Netherlands and then eventually be able to say, well, we brought this to the Netherlands. So that's an example. And that can happen all the way down to one person, you know, in one school saying, okay, my kid's school, I'm on the, the, 
committee. I want to see if the school would get involved and how can they get involved. It's free to schools. So, and then it comes not just with the competition itself, but it comes with an education program, both for teachers and for kids. So they have master classes that they can sign up to. They're very sh short, but they're, they're all about sustainability, empowerment. The things, Edward, that we would have learned through EO as we got older, brought and distilled into, you know, younger generations pathways for them, different career options that maybe schools don't have you know, that they're not focused around math, science, and engineering. So the more creative side of, of career paths. That's, I think that's the biggest thing. Telling the story, pointing people in our direction, paying it forward, all those things. Spotting talent and saying, you, you know what? I know a competition that you should be in because you'll find a lot of creative young people are very much on their own. You know, that's, their, that's the way they are. So if you spot that, and we've had people refer kids to us that maybe are in orphanages so not really always in school yeah okay i guess yeah we have to watch it the time troy i could listen to you for hours and i have so many more questions but i think what you said really aligns with the the title of the podcast so it's this is a perfect example of love not fear so thank you for that thank you for your time very inspirational as always i think the audience will agree that when you start talking about this topic magic happens so Thank you for that. And if please uh, subscribe to the podcast if you like it, leave a comment. I will put in the show notes a link to the video and some more background information of Junk Couture. Should you want to uh, know more, write them. There's a team available that can help join this movement in the initiative. And happy to see you next time. Thanks, Troy. Thank you, Edward. Appreciate it. <laughs>